Hannah is someone that I have heard messages preached on on Mother's Day, but to my, I don't think I've ever heard anybody preach on Hannah other than on Mother's Day. She has a really famous story, which we will go through here and see, but because of the, the context of this story, she almost always is thought about on Mother's Day and not any other time. But her life has lessons for all year round, not, and not just for mothers. There are some things that we can learn here. I'm going to try to get through uh, these five thoughts here tonight. And the first one that I want you to see is that sorrow is always going to be a part of life. Look with me in 1 Samuel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. There was a man from Ramathaim Zophim in the hill country of Ephraim. His name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. Aren't you glad we don't introduce each other that way today? Well, now, this was his daddy. This was his granddaddy. This was his grandpappy. You know, this, that, that, they, it's a long line here. And so that's all of his family. He had two wives. The first was named Hannah and the second Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah was childless. This man would go up from his town every year to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of armies at Shiloh, where Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were the Lord's priests. Whenever Elkanah offered a sacrifice, he always gave portions of, of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to each of her sons and daughters. But he gave a double portion to Hannah, for he loved her even though the Lord had kept her from conceiving. Her rival would taunt her, meaning the other wife, Peninnah, would taunt her severely just to provoke her because the Lord had kept Hannah from conceiving. Year after year, when she went up to the Lord's house, her rival taunted her this way. Hannah would weep and would not eat. Hannah's story is just like our stories. It has pain. It has brokenness, it has sorrow, it has loss, it has grief, it has hurt. Life is like that. Life, pain is a part of life. There's not a single one of us who can say, now God, if I promise you that I am going to do this and do this and do this and do this and do this, God, I'm going to do all of these things, please insulate me. Put a, put a shelter around me so that I don't ever experience hurt. Now, I'm not making any comment on um, modern social policies. I'm just saying that they are different from when I was growing up. I never wore a helmet riding a bicycle. I never had elbow pads. I never had knee pads. I never, in fact, when I was younger, I... I rode, I mean, four or five years old, I rode in the front seat of a car without a seat belt on. There, there are just things that are different now. And what happens, in fact, sometimes my daddy would hang me out the window, you know, when we were riding along. You going to act right now? Yes, sir, I sure am. <laughs> you know, pull me in on the other side. But, but there seems to be an emphasis today on we have to do everything possible to keep someone from getting hurt. I, this is not a new story. It, it's something that came to my mind when I was preparing this. I, and I don't know whether it's still the law or not. But in Massachusetts, when, when I remember reading this, they outlawed the game 
tag in elementary school because it demeaned the slow runners. They were afraid that the people who were slow, Mr. Charlie, you know what I'm talking about, the people who couldn't run fast, they were afraid that their little self-esteem would be broken because they could always be caught. And I thought, you are not doing anybody a favor because life is full of pain. All of the trophies given out, buddy, you did good. But he didn't do good. And eventually a boss is going to say, you did not do good. You're gone. But I never had to do good. There, there is a sense that works through our current society that says we have to do everything possible to, get, to keep someone from being hurt. And that is an awful preparation for life. Kids need to lose some games because they're going to lose some things later. And if you don't know how to handle it, if you don't know how to process it, then you just get crushed by it. But I won't say that that's just about children. That's about us too. We need to learn how to process grief and loss and pain and hurt and disappointment and discouragement. Because as long as you and I are here, we are going to have it. Hannah did. She was faithful. She was a, devo a devoted follower of God. She was someone who really loved the Lord, but that did not spare her from being childless. And it did not spare her from the taunts of the other wife saying, Why can't you have children? I'm just having them all over the place. What's wrong with you? And what this passage tells us is that Hannah would weep. She, she was so overcome with grief, she couldn't even eat. But life is like that. And Hannah's life teaches us that. That we, we need to be prepared for the pain that is coming our way because it is coming our way. The second thing that I want to say is related to something that we're going to talk about later. But... The second idea that I want you to see is that we can talk to the Lord about what's going on. In verse 8, Scripture tells us that her husband, Hannah, at, Hannah, why are you crying? Her husband, Elkanah, would ask. Why won't you eat? Why are you, why are you troubled? Am I not better to you than ten sons? He says, look, I know you're childless, but that doesn't impact how much I love you. You know how much I love you. Here, please, you, you are a blessing to me. Verse 9 says, on one occasion, Hannah got up after they ate and drank at Shiloh. The priest Eli was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. Deeply hurt, Hannah prayed to the Lord and wept with many tears. Making a vow, she pleaded, Lord of armies, if you will take notice of your servant's affliction, if you will just see how much I'm hurting God, remember and not forget me and give your servant a son. I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and his hair will never be cut. Hannah's husband, Elkanah, tried his best to comfort him, and we don't ever need to discount that. We need to be grateful when, when church family surrounds us and supports us, but sometimes their words just aren't enough. 
And in this case, though Elkanah did try to comfort Hannah, his words were not enough. I'm not saying that they were meaningless. I'm just saying that they weren't enough. And Hannah said, I have to go tell the Lord about this. He will understand. He will be able to minister to me in a way that even loved ones cannot. One of my favorite verses in Scripture that I quote to people during difficult times is Psalm 34, 18, which says the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves those whose spirits are broken, whose spirits are crushed. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves those whose spirits are crushed. When others do not understand our grief, God does. And I always try to be careful. I'm not saying that anybody else has to do that. But I always try to be careful when people are hurting and say, man, I know just how you feel. Because I don't know how they feel. I know how I felt in a similar situation, but I don't know how they feel. But God does know how they feel. God knows exactly how they feel. He understands. In fact, Romans chapter 8 tells us when we are hurting so badly that we don't even know how to pray, the Holy Spirit says, I know what you need to pray. I'll pray it for you. That's an incredible gift. God understands the lowest points of our lives. For my major at Mississippi State, I had to take four semesters of a foreign language. And so I took Spanish. And so, uh, you know, I wanted to be prepared to order at Taco Bell. And so I went and took my four semesters of Spanish. And the first three semesters, I really did well. But the fourth semester was a challenge for me. The first three semesters were memorizing vocabulary words and reading and writing Spanish, translating it, seeing it on a test paper, and then writing out this is what that means in English, or having an English sentence and converting it to Spanish. And I really did well in the first three semesters. But the fourth semester was completely different because from the moment I walked into that classroom, Senora Lopez did not speak a word of English. When you went into Spanish 4, you were expected not to be able to read it at your own pace and think and say, okay, here's how to respond to that or here's how to translate it. You had to pick it up, you know, that moment. And her accent was thick. She was from Venezuela. And, and, and so that accent was a little less common than people from Mexico or Central America, you know, that, that, we might, uh, that we might be more familiar with, I could not understand her at all. I constantly was sitting. In fact, I'm about to give you a little bit of trivia. I sat next to, some of this, this name won't mean anything to some of you, but in Spanish 4, I sat next to Rafael Palmero. And the reason that I chose to sit next to him is because he could understand Senor Lopez. And I would lean over and say, what did she say? <laughs> and he would explain it to me. I would then give him some batting tips. And so you know, we, would, we would trade off that way. And so I could not understand anything that she said, but he could. That's the way God is. 
Others may not be able to understand the depth of how much we're hurting. They may not even think it's a big deal, but God knows if it is, and he understands it. We can be just like Hannah and say, God, I don't really have anywhere else to turn. People are trying to be helpful to me. They're trying to comfort me, and I know they're doing their best, and their words do, do minister to me, but I have to come to you for this. And he says, well, then come right on. Third, I want you to see that a person with really deep commitment to God sometimes is considered unusual. Look with me in verse 12. While she continued praying in the Lord's presence, Eli watched her mouth. Hannah was praying silently, and though her lips were moving, her voice could not be heard. In other words, she was moving her mouth. She was mouthing the words, but she wasn't saying anything out like she was just... You know, just like that. And so Eli walked in, in in the middle part of verse 13. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to be drunk? Get rid of your wine. So Eli came in and confronted her, and he said, you get up from there. We don't drink in here. We save that for the session meeting. Now, you don't act like that. Get up. And she said, no, 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 no. I haven't been drinking. In verse 15, no, my Lord, Hannah replied, I am a woman with a broken heart. I haven't had any wine or beer. I've been pouring out my heart before the Lord. Don't think of me as a wicked woman. I've been praying from the depth of my anguish and resentment. Eli responded, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant the requests you've made of him. May your servant find favor with you, she replied. Then Hannah went her way. She ate and no longer looked despondent. Now, this, this scene to me is an indictment on Eli the priest. Eli, as a, as a religious pastor, as someone who was shepherding over God's people, he should have had enough spiritual discernment and perception to be able to say, this woman's brokenhearted. But he was so out of touch with, with the real movement of God that, that he thought this woman was drunk which meant that Eli had not seen that type of fervent prayer often. He, he had not seen this depth of communion with God. And, and so when he saw it, it, it caught him off guard. He, he didn't have a way to explain it. I don't know if you've ever known a person like this, but there are people that I have known who were so deeply in love with Jesus that people considered them odd. There are a lot of people, there are a lot of very religious people in this world. There are a lot of people who come to churches on Sunday mornings. But there is only a sliver, there's a very small minority of people who say, Lord, wherever you send me, I will go. Wherever you lead me, I will follow. Whatever you ask me, I will do. There is a tiny tiny number of those people and those people often strike us as a bit unusual they're a little bit weird do you remember what people said about jesus when he walked on earth even his own family said he's not all there there are two different occasions where jesus's family tried to bring him back home because they considered him insane the things that he was saying the 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 things that he was doing 
struck people as so peculiar that they said, mm, something is not right about that. A really deep walk with God sometimes can cause that to happen. Now, a surface-level relationship with God won't ever cause people to think that you are odd. But somebody who, in the core of his or her being, just says, Lord, whatever you tell me, I will do it. Those people often are considered odd and weird. And sometimes that can happen. The more deeply in love with Jesus we are, the less we fit in with people who are not deeply in love with Jesus. The next thing that I want to show you is that, and I said it was kind of related to the second thing, second point, the Lord responds to the words that we say to him. Remember way back up earlier in verse 11, she said, God, please give me a son. Well, then in verse 19, the next morning, Elkanah and Hannah got up early to worship before the Lord. Afterward, they returned home to Ramah. Then Elkanah was intimate with his wife. And then I love this last clause. And the Lord remembered her. God never forgets us. There's not a single moment that we ever walk alone. God always knows where we are. Psalm 139 says, He goes before us, He goes behind us. Before we even speak a word, He knows what we are going to say. When we get up, He's there. When we sit down, He's there. There is no place that we can go that God is not with us. He remembers us. And here, the Lord remembered Hannah. Verse 20, After some time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel because she said, I requested him from the Lord. You may be named after a family member, a, a grandfather or an aunt or somebody like that. Uh, sometimes moms and dads name their children based on, you know, family connections. Sometimes, though, moms and dads do what they did in Bible times and they give their children names based on the meaning of the name. Maybe you went through a baby book and started looking and seeing the meaning of names. And said, oh, this means godly princess. Let's name our daughter that. This means strong warrior. Let's name our son that. I think Gary means slow to learn or something like that. And you, you name the child based on the significant, significance of the name. The name Samuel in Hebrew means God heard me. I don't know if you have anybody in your family named Samuel, but their name means God heard me. And so here, Hannah knew that not only could she talk to God about what she was facing, but she also knew the Lord was listening. And so we can hold on to the same thing, that the Lord remembers us. And then the last thing that I want you to see is in verses 21 to 28. When Elkanah and all his household went up to make the annual sacrifice and his vow offering to the Lord, Hannah did not go and explained to her husband, after the child is weaned, I'll take him to appear in the Lord's presence and to stay there permanently. Her husband Elkanah replied, do what you think is best and stay here until you've weaned him. May the Lord confirm your word. So Hannah stayed there and nursed her son until she weaned him. When she had weaned him, she took him 
uh, took him with her to Shiloh as well as a three-year-old bull, half a bushel of flour, and the clay jar of wine. Though the boy was still young, she took him to the Lord's house at Shiloh. Then they slaughtered the bull and brought him to Eli. Please, my Lord, she said, as surely as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this boy, and since the Lord gave me what I asked him for, I now give the boy to the Lord. For as long as he lives, he is given to the Lord. Then he worshiped the Lord there. You remember that way back when Hannah prayed, she said, God, if you will just please, please give me a son. I'll let him be a prophet. I won't be selfish. I won't hold on to him. I'll let him honor you by taking on the role of a prophet and a priest. Hannah kept her word. She didn't make a crisis promise. Oh, God, we've done that. I've done that. I don't know if you have. I've done that. God, if you will just, I promise. And then sometimes we don't keep our promises. But keeping your vows, keeping my vows, keeping our vows to the Lord is important. When we say, God, this is, this is something that I intend to do. He expects us to do it, not in the moment of emergency. God, if you'll just get me out of this mess, God, I promise you, if you will just make this all right, then I will, that, that then I will part matters to God. And Hannah, in her distress, said, God, this, is, this request is about something much bigger than just me. If you'll give me a son, I'll let him, I'll let him be a prophet and a priest. I, I, won't, I won't hold on to him. I'll release him so that he can do whatever you want. And she did it. And we need to do the same. I really appreciate your being here tonight. This is a great crowd. This is an outstanding you know, group uh, in ratio to our Sunday service. But there are some people that aren't with us yet. And so this week, make an effort to look around and, and say, hey, so-and-so's not here. I'm going to invite them to be a part of our Wednesday activities too. Uh, I look forward to seeing you on Sunday. Sunday, we're going to start a seven-week series on uh, pressing on. Regardless of how long a person has been a follower of Jesus Christ, he or she has a next step to take. Nobody's there yet. There's not a person in this room, including me, maybe mainly me, who is the person that Jesus Christ wants them to be. We all have next steps. And so Sunday morning, we're going to begin a seven-week series that talks about what are these next steps and what are the areas in which we need to take them. And I'm really excited about it. I've been working on this series for about three weeks or so, so I'm a, a little bit ahead on the first couple of sermons, and I think we're going to have a good time together. So invite somebody to be here Sunday morning. I know it's Labor Day weekend, and there will be some people gone, but for those of us who are here, we are going to meet the Lord together. For this coming Sunday morning is Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 31. And since you've got it on Wednesday night, I'll ask someone Sunday to stand up and quote it word for word. <laughs> 